Welcome back to the Rad Talk with Tracy podcast and part two of our episode, Second Chance Adoptions. Today I'll be talking with Anne Lamphere about her program, Second Chance Adoptions. Let's get started. But I've been running my agency for about uh, nine years and, and I had to close it in 2007 because nobody was placing babies. Because you became a social worker. You're a social worker. I became a social worker and graduated in 1993. Okay. First two years out of social work, <laughs> I was a, what they call a supervising social worker for the social workers that are in nursing homes. Okay. So the social workers in nursing homes generally don't have a MSW. They have what they call a BSW, which is a bachelor's degree in social work. And so they can work in nursing homes, but they have to have somebody supervise. And I worked for the places that, uh, the place that did supervisions of a lot of nursing homes here in, in Utah. Okay. But my love has always wanted to be, was adoptions. And when a job became available at Children's Service Society, I grabbed at that, got my experiences of working with adoptions again. And then I decided to open my own agency and in 19... 97, I opened my agency called Adopt an Angel. We were laughing about it because my sister says, oh, that's a great name. <laughs> it turned out that uh, I got, first time I got my uh, stamp for my for paperwork stamp, they said, oh, are you with the angel tree? <laughs> Their symbol was Adopt an Angel off the angel tree. <laughs> But it la- I worked in it until 2007 and then took a, a, like about a four-month break. And because I had to place my files with another agency, I picked the one up in uh, Ogden, which is Wasatch International Adoptions. I knew the director. I felt like they were a very ethical agency. And so that's where I put my files. And, of course, the director and I went to lunch and had good chats. We actually did it for a couple of three weeks. We talked on the phone, did some stuff. She says, why don't you come over here and open my, because she only did an international. She says, I'd like to do some infant adoptions because I've had people ask and, and some birth mothers that have asked if we would work with them. And I said, oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and so for the first three years I worked with Wasatch, that's what we did. We, we placed babies and did a lot of uh, kind of outreach and stuff. And I learned a lot about international adoptions that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And when she got contacted by the gal named Cindy Peck, who is our uh, second chance program administrator, to turn the, uh, the second chance program to Wasatch, because even though Cindy Peck has got an agency in Montana, she wanted an agency with a lot more outreach, and Wasatch being a major outreach agency. And I sat in on talks with them. We talked about my background, what had gone on with my kids, all these different things, and decided, let's do this. And so I became the social worker that way. It was just, I see. And so you decided to start this second chance program at right. the agency you were working at. Right. So talk about that because 
when I heard about it, I was a feeling like this is what just any adoption, all agencies, the state, everybody should be doing adoptions the way that you do them the first time versus a second time. And so I just think what you're doing is incredible. I wish it was done from the very get-go, but it isn't. And this is where you come in. So talk about second chance. What is that? What do you do? Okay. We do secondary adoptions and that's what we call them, the secondary adoptions. People adopt a child like my daughter or like yours or like a lot of people that don't understand what's going on with their kid because the kid is not not a normal kid. There's something right. wrong with that child and you can't figure it out because those kids know how to figure you out quicker. That's the truth. And what we do is we take these families who are in crisis, wanting to place, wanting someplace for their child to go that's safe and not institutionalized if they can help it. Mm -hmm. And we, at one time we were taking them up to the age of 15. Wow, okay. But it became very obvious to us that kids in the teenage years were not going very fast. Now, as the story goes, I would have taken some. It, it, the joke in the agent it, it, with Cindy and, and my, Kathy Kaiser, the director, is if it was if Van could take them, any child that came with the reactive reactive sexuality, I'd be first in line. Right. Because I deal dealt with it. it, doesn't bother me any. I work. I I'm the one who advocates for those kids particularly, because sometimes they'll go, oh, I don't think we can place this child. Mm -hmm. I says, child's a good age. We just have to make sure that some whoever is adopting that child doesn't have issues with sexuality. And they go, what do you mean? And I'm going, I think they both have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it, it's a very we're a very christian company you know very lds company i'm not lds but most of the people in the, the, the agency are i see yeah and uh i go kids are big kids so a family comes to you with a child that they've adopted and they're having a tough time. And you were telling me a lot of them are kids with reactive attachment disorder. Is that right? That is right. Okay. But they can also have sexualized reactive sexuality as well. And so you, we get a variety of kids. We get kids that somebody has adopted and they find out that they have a medical condition that this family is never going to be able to handle. Right. And well, we don't want those kids going to foster care because a lot of them end up in foster care and we know what foster care does. It's not a good place for kids. It's not. And we look at it all and say, it's okay. We can help. We do take them now up to 10 years of age and we have taken some that are up to 12 right now. But most of them are under 10. We have three-year-olds. We had two three-year-olds in January and February. Really? Yeah, this year. I went, oh my gosh. Of course they went, zip, and they were right. in place. Right, right. 
So now these families come to you with their story of whatever reason, reactive attachment disorder. So it's almost like an, an adoption that's going to be disrupted, but it's not because it's a second adoption. So you work with families who are interested in taking these kids into their home as their family. Yep. We we actually have a, a Facebook page for the second chance adoptions. Good. Uh, and it has 80 some odd, I think 87,000 followers. Wow. And these I'm are not people, surprised. I'm not surprised. I say, wow, but I'm not surprised. It, it's just amazing. And yeah. we put a child's profile out. We don't show their name, last name, nothing. We change the first name. And we put that out uh, like a, a picture and a brief outline of what the good things are about the kid. And when somebody says, I'm interested in that child, we always tell them to read between the lines. <laughs> right. Because these kids don't come to us for uh, good reasons. <laughs> right. So people coming to your website are already aware of how this works and that it's yeah. going to be probably a more challenging situation. Right. And so they see a child that they're interested in. How do you work with both families to make an adoption happen? Okay. First of all, we get thousands of emails sometimes from, we get a cute little girl who's five or six. She's causing all sorts of conflict in the home because she's got rad reactive attachment disorder is, is a housebreaker. Sometimes the parents are living in two separate places because one kid does better with that parent. And when the other parent is around, they're just off the wall. So we work with these families and when they, they actually turn in an application for us, we, we do an intake call. I'm the one that does the intake calls with the, uh, I, I, we get these intake, I do the intake call with a, uh, a we call her an intake uh, coordinator. Right because she actually does the write-up of the families that we send them a little eight to 10 page biography of the child. And she does that write-up. I do all the write-ups for the government. <laughs> gotcha. And in that write-up eight to 10 pages, is that where everything that you can get your hands on, all the information about the child, is that what goes into that report? It goes into it. We also, what we have the families do when they're uh, applying for our program, they send us all their information, all the child's medical school records, anything, psych records, just about anything that happens with the kid. Okay. And uh, so we have all that information and they do us original and a redacted copy. So people that are interested after they've read the eight to 10 page biography, uh, they know what the kid's doing. They know what they, uh, some of the things they like and some of the things they cause issues with everybody. They know all of that. But if they want to see the records and see what diagnoses really are or how they're doing in school and just say, you're doing great in school, he gets A's or he gets B's. You want to see whether he's uh, disruptive as well. Right. And that usually comes out of the school records. Okay. So we send these, we send the prospective families. And like I say, we get, if we get a cute kid, we get thousands. If we get 
uh, a boy who uh, is kind of rough looking, maybe a couple of hundred, wanting more information. Once they see the write-up, it drops down to maybe a hundred on the cute kid, yeah. uh, down to maybe five if we're lucky on the kid that looks really rough and, and but there are people that are still hanging in there and interested. Yeah. They, we place practically every kid we get. Now, no place is going to do everything perfect. No. We get people that the kid is so out of control, they have to, he gets put in a psych ward and they put him in a psych rehabilitation youth center. Right. Um, but most of the kids that come to you, you do end up making okay. a second adoption. Yeah. Up placing them in a, in a new family. And we have about a 97%, 95 to 97% success rate. Wow. And, and how long does it usually take? Like if a family comes to you and you say you get all that interest and start whittling it down to the real the people that are really interested, how long does a process take from a parent coming to you on average? I'm sure it's longer because of different reasons, depending on the child and what's going on. But is there kind of a guesstimate, an average of how long that whole process happens when a family comes to you and then the child's adopted into that second new? Yeah, it takes about, if they, if they're, if everything goes well, and that includes once they've been, once they, the placing family has finished their part, which is the final is the intake call usually until the, we find a family for them. It takes about maybe a month to a month and a half to find a family for them. That's it? And, but it takes longer for the child to get there. I see. Okay. Gotcha. So you found the family in about a month and a half. And then yeah. there's the process that happens after that. After that, because uh, the... Once the family has, uh, the new families are whittled down because they'll send their, they do a react, redacted uh, information packet for them, for the placing family. Okay. So they get that redacted and usually it's a home study and other information that the people write, kind of a biography on them. And they, the placing family gets the new information, reads it through and goes, well, I kind of like that one, but I'm not sure. So we always ask if they tell them if they've got any questions to call and to email her coordinator and she'll see what she can find out because she emails the placing family and says, adopting new family wants this information or the placing family wants this information that you didn't place, didn't do. Uh, so it's a kind of back and forth mm -hmm. for that. Okay. We usually give them, we usually try to keep it down to about three to four families at the most that we present to the, to the placing family. I if you see. get too many, it's, you, you begin to say, oh, was that in that person's file or was that in that person's <laughs> file? So yeah, you've got to narrow like, it down. We try to narrow it down yeah. and uh, uh, we actually like it if there's less than three phone calls, but the placing family and the new families have a phone call kind of like this only it's just a phone call i said we'll eventually go to the zooms i can see it happening and they actually talk and get to know each other on the phone 
our uh, program director, Cindy Peck, is on that line. She coordinates that. And then they decide, well, Cindy will give them, say, let's everybody take a break and let's have your response in the next 48 hours. Usually the response is within 15 minutes. Really? It's that quick? It can be that quick because, and Cindy says she can tell about first 15 minutes into the call who's going to be the family. Really? That's Uh wild. And it really works out. It does. And they get, uh, once that call is made, then they make the decision of which family they want. Mm -hmm. And the legal stuff comes into play. Oh, my God. Right. We have to do the interstate compact. They have to have a, uh, the placing family has to have an attorney yeah. that helps them get the relinquishments done. And the uh, adopting family, of course, has to have an attorney to do the ICPC because ICPC has to be signed off for both states. And what's ICPC? Interstate compact uh, for children. Uh, for adopted children, I see okay. uh, placing children. Placing children, gotcha. Yeah, um, and the we use ICPC so often I forget. I know. <laughs> you know, it's one of those acronyms you just go, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but it takes about three to six weeks after that to get the ICPC approved, and usually about the six weeks because ICPCs. Most of them are not in any hurry. I see. But we have been approved by the state of Utah. The agency, uh, we actually had, uh, when we first started, they were really concerned about what we were doing. And we have been the, the prototype. There are a couple of other agencies doing it. Nightlife Adoptions, I think, is one. I don't know the other one, but I know there was somebody else that was doing it. But they started after us and used our model. Model. And and so it can happen to other people. You know, they're out there. Right. And but we have been doing it the longest. Mm-hmm. And like I say, it's been eleven years. Right. And I'm still going strong, but I'm not going to do it much longer. No, no. And so, will someone take your place, or the agency will keep doing it? No, the agency is, we will be actually, I will be on the hiring. Yeah. Because it, ha- it takes a special person because most social workers, when there's an adoption, should be for life. And they are really, really bad about it. And I've seen that even when we're dealing with an adoption worker who says, I'm in favor of them getting some help. But is placing their child? No. They need to live with that child. I'm going, I've lived with one. Thank you very much. <laughs> but right. no. Right. I, I think if I had had a family for Kara, she would have done so much better. Yeah. I was yeah. just another caretaker. Right. So kids like Kara are older or the kids, do, do they meet this family at some point? Do they have some kind of involvement in this or uh not really re- okay yeah yeah <laughs> okay let me tell you how that we work that because okay. we actually do a, what we call a four-day transition plan we send the, the adopting family uh they adopting family sends a, a picture book of who they are you know album 
what their house looks like, what their kids look like, if they've got any, what their pets look like. Gives them a, and uh, nowadays they're doing, a lot of them are doing Zooms, which I, we found was funny. It, some of the some of the states require visits. Right. So with Zoom, it made it very nice because now the state has to acknowledge that the Zoom works just as well as yeah. being in person. Yes. And because we have somebody in Hawaii who's placing their child and that person lives in New York, there isn't a lot. Right. <laughs> and I was going to ask that if you work with everybody across the country. We do. We work. Okay. We don't work out internationally. That mm -hmm. is one thing we don't do. But in the U.S., within the but U.S. But in the U.S., but with all the U.S. rules and everything else. Right. And uh, Cindy Peck has an in with the uh, Quad A adoption attorneys. It's the American Association of Adoption Attorneys. Quad okay. A. So she's been, she does uh, uh, every couple of years, she does a, a section where they talk about second chance and how it works. Gotcha. And so she's made a lot of contacts with ad adoption attorneys in each state and how they work and how it functions. Gotcha. And, so uh, it makes it really, really nice. Yeah, very nice. And so, sorry, I got off track a little bit, but going back, so the family sends, the prospective family sends the book about themselves and their house. Yeah. And so that's part of this four-day transition. Right, that's part of it. And uh, then the placing family usually a few days beforehand and starts talking about the child finding a new home. Most of them are so excited they want to get away from that home they're living in. They want to go somewhere else. Right. It's kind of funny. But they start talking about it. And the kid goes, when do I get to meet them? Oh, they'll be here next weekend. We try to do a four-day weekend, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday that weekend. Okay. Uh, mainly because it's people's work schedules and yeah. stuff. But we try to get that totally set so that it will do a, a real short get to know you what we have the first night when they get when the adopting family goes to the area where the placing family is so say someone goes from uh colorado to texas they'll go on friday the people from colorado the adopting family will go to texas where the child is They'll find the place to stay. Right now they're doing. Oh, Airbnb. Airbnbs, thank you. <laughs> and but they've been doing that. They usually stayed at the hotel. There's some of them are the hotels are beginning to open up, so they're staying at the hotels for that time frame. So you're still doing this through COVID. We're still doing it through COVID. We've okay. placed quite a few kids through COVID. The adopting couple stays at the place. They find a place where they can go have coffee or a, a light meal and meet with the placing family without the child. Okay. And all the information is passed back and forth at that time with the family, but they also get to know each other a little bit mm -hmm. more. They've talked on the phone, but they all get to see each other in person, nice. get to know each other a little bit more. The next morning, they take the child the placing family brings the child to wherever a family is staying. They're in a hotel 
uh, they kind of wait till after the breakfast hour is over with because some of the hotels have the breakfast hour. And so they wait till that's over with so they can meet at the hotel in an, in an area. And then they, one or two of the parents, placing parents, stays with the child all day long with the family. They go do something fun, but something that's not overly, uh, shall we say, stimulating. Right. Like going to a zoo or, or uh, you know, just playing when the bowling centers were open. <laughs> bowling was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, okay. because there was always people able to talk and, and get to know each other and stuff while you're between getting up and throwing a bowling ball. Right. Now they're closed for the most part. <laughs> so they're going to zoos. They're going to walks. They're going to the park just where they can be on an area where there's private and not a lot of things going on. And then the child goes back home on that first full day to stay with these the placing family. Right. The next day, one of the parents brings the child back to the where the adopting family is, says he'll see they'll see him later, and they leave the child with the family for that day. Usually that day is spent on if there's a swimming pool available at the hotel, they'll go, you know, do some swimming or some things like that. But mostly they'll play cards, they'll play games, they'll do crafts, a lot of stuff that's very mild, very non-stimulating, just something to get to know each other even better. And if everything goes swimmingly, which it usually does, and, and the ICPCs have both been approved, that doesn't always happen. And if it doesn't, then the fam- the adopting family has to stay another couple of days. Okay. But usually it happens because it's, it's all done fairly routinely nowadays. But the ICP, one of the people at the ICPC in one of the states said, oh, I only work two days a week. And she hadn't got to it yet. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. And they said, when are you going to work? She says, oh, I won't be back till Monday. And they're at, sitting there on Monday going, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> right? Oh, no. <laughs> and that's actually happened. So I bet it, it has, yeah. Yeah. And they made her say, I think they made that one. Uh, they called their supervisor and they got the ICPC approved. But it still was like, oh, my. What are we going to mm-hmm. do now for the next right. week? The whole week, yeah. But the family, the placing family, usually on the night before they're ready to leave, brings back, brings all the stuff that's are, are going with her or him, the child. Okay. So they have that in tow. And if they're flying and she's got a lot, they've got a lot of stuff. Sometimes they've got bikes. The new family will probably buy a new bike. Right. But if, if there's stuff that they like and they can't fit in a suitcase, they'll pack them up and ship them. And that's happened a lot of times. It's making sure the child has what he had. That's one, right. And it kind of makes a, a, a permanent shift. Right. And so it, it's really very smooth. Cindy is always on the call when they first meet mm-hmm. on the Saturday when they're meeting a child. If they have any questions or any problems come up, they can text her and, and let help them out. And so then the family goes home with the child and depending how long it takes in your state their state to uh, finalize sometimes this will four months 
there'd been a couple of them over three months and I went, oh, that's for, it wasn't first for me, but uh, there are a lot of states that are doing it four months and some of them, a lot of more of the majority do six months. And there are a couple of them that will have to wait a year. Right. How does it work out from there? So how do the families that have um, placed the child with the new family, what is, you know, what do you hear back from them and how they feel? And then, you know, how successful are things on the other side with the new family usually? Well, like I say, we have a, a success rate of about 90, 95 to 97%. And that includes they stay with that family and they're they happy and... Oh, they're totally different. Uh, you can talk to that family and they're going, I, I read all this stuff. Why isn't that kid behaving like that? Right. Even after years with Even the after child. Years. Even after years. The Rad Talk with Tracy podcast is now collaborating with an organization called Rad Advocates. Rad Advocates is a nonprofit organization and it was founded by a mom who raised a child with reactive attachment disorder. Rad Advocates educates and advocates to equip families, professionals, and communities to effectively support children with Rad. They exist to build a future where families have the help they need and deserve to raise children with Rad while preserving the mental health and physical safety of their families as a whole. Rad Advocates, guiding from experience, leading for change. Learn more at radadvocates.org. What do you think the difference is with these kids that couldn't attach or um, had such difficulty in the one family? Is it the system and how it happened in the beginning? The family doesn't have enough information. Uh, do you have any insight on that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I figured you would. <laughs> um, a lot of the families aren't aware of what the child went through. Now, the child has learned to manipulate adults so many times because of in an orphanage, there's only one or two adults, and that child recognizes that child, adult is not going to be able to handle every child at the same time, and they learn how to manipulate that person to fix what answer their need, the child's needs, and it, we see this all the time. Manipulation is probably one of the major major diagnoses of rad is right. how fast they can manipulate a parent as yeah. i say they walk into the home and they've got your number before you even know they've been thinking oh, that is <laughs> so true yeah so they true have, they're sizing you up yeah they're sizing you up they know and they know what's <laughs> i mean they they know your vulnerabilities they know which which will make you crazy and which will go okay as I say, I, personally, I don't, I know I got manipulated, okay, but I was trying, and that was my vulnerability, was I was trying to be a good parent, and most people that want to adopt a child, that's what they want to be, is a good parent, and that child is going, oh, they've got a weakness, let's see how much I can do that will make them feel... I'm a powerful one. And kids from orphanages have a power, a need for power. And they figure it out very quickly on their caretakers. And I'm sorry, if anybody's even thinking about adopting a child, 
think about that before you, because you need to be the strong one immediately. And see, when I had foster kids, my one foster daughter, Susan, said one of the things that she always appreciated was, as I told her, she needed to be the child and I'd take care of her as an adult. No problems. No issues. Kara came home and I could say that, but she wouldn't understand a word I said. But all I was was another caretaker. Because all the caretakers she had were women. And a woman was an enemy. And that was what I was. And that's how I've always felt, that I was the enemy. Mm-hmm. Because it was not, a, a, the relationship was never loving, never caring. Now, I'm a loving person. I like to hug my boy, my nephews. I was always hugging my nephews. That's one of the reasons I got approved for adoption in the first place, which was Steve came over during the time I was being interviewed for my home, one of my home studies and sat down and and the gal asked her, asked him how, what he felt. And he says, I think she'd be a great mom. I, we love her a lot. And came over and hugged me. <laughs> Social worker said when she left, I have nephews, but they don't do that. Oh. <laughs> uh, funniest story, but it's true. I'm a loving person. I'm a caring person. Kara right. wanted no part of that. And most of the rad kids do not. They can sometimes do it to manipulate you. But it's not sincere. Right. No. And you see this with a lot with rad kids, but there are also kids from orphanages who will eventually outgrow it, that need, and and become great kids. But the ones with that are, and of course, I read a thing the other day that was a reactive attachment was a, a baby's, a child, a young child's disease. No. No. And I, didn't, I disagree totally with that. Argument. I think a lot of people would, a lot of rad parents would. Yeah, because the child has to be old enough to make an unconscious decision, but it's still there that I'm got to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Two-year-olds, three-year-olds, one-year-olds, they may ha- come with rad and they do, but a lot of that is because of being kept by some changing caretakers in our right. Some kind of trauma, some kind of trauma. trauma. So now do you think, um, because when I, learned about you it made me wish that the the general system the general adoption system you know i feel like we get information about the child obviously but there's so much that we don't get or that's missing and so with your program and how you take the time you get all of the information you can and i know it's hard with kids that are getting adopted they come from traumatic backgrounds and homes and they don't necessarily have all that information right but i guess i think that there's more than we're given or the system could be more organized like what you're doing and set the parents up for the most success and including the reality of who is coming into your home and resources that are available to help you know is that what makes you different and what the the 95 plus success rate is it makes a big difference it really does i mean these people that are adopting our kids 
they've got all that information in front of them. That child is going into their home with the knowledge of what that child's behaviors have been, being able to address those as being the parent and not being just a caretaker, but being a parent. Right. And, and most of these kids, like I say, can't say a hundred percent. I still think of the family that a single mom over in Hawaii was adopting this little kid because he wanted to go to Hawaii to live and send him back four days later. That's an absolute anomaly. Most of the time the parents are doing, they don't do things like that. But the child, an a eight-year-old or nine-year-old, they're getting suspicious. Sophisticated. Sophisticated. Yeah. Sophisticated. And able to make all of the, you know, make kind of decisions. Yeah. And they're looking at their parents going, oh, these kids, these parents, I can figure out how to manipulate them. And so they start doing it. But these parents are also keeping records, even if it's only in their head. They know that that child is not behaving like a normal child. Right. And the sooner Rad gets diagnosed nowadays, the way I feel, the better off families will be, the better off the child will be, because the child can wreck the home. There's people getting divorces. There's mm-hmm. people living in separate homes, people living in separate levels of the home. And families traumatized, siblings, parents. Other children are traumatized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we always ask them to, we always kind of ask the placing family, uh, are you willing to get counseling once a child is placed someone will say yes and someone will say no but we always want them to know that they need to do that and that's one of the questions I always ask are you aware that it could be grief could be loss could be a lot of different things right placing that child and you might need some outside help mm-hmm. to survive you're really setting families up for success and the families that place do you ever hear from them how they feel and what this experience has been for them and how are they doing all the time and most of them after about a year when it takes that long or longer somebody once said that you've got a a, a problem child it takes the same amount of years as how long you've had them and how old they are it'll take that much time for that child to turn around not always, but that was kind of the thing. If you got a nine-year-old child, that child's not going to turn around until he's 18. Right. I've heard that. Yeah. 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 Well, and I see that occasionally, but I also see a nine-year-old who's been living with the family since they were five, giving all sorts of problems, going into a home when within a year to two years, totally another child, totally different. Wow. And it just makes you feel like you've, you've done something right. The family that's placed that child, our adoptions are not, shall we say, private adoptions. They're not, they're considered a different type of adoption, but they're definitely open adoptions. The families get the other families' emails, phone numbers. So they stay in touch and... We encourage them to stay in touch. I, I get those and send me a thing to say, I don't want anything more to do with this child. And I always have to either Cindy or I explain the facts of life. 
you're going to have their phone numbers, you're going to have their email addresses, you're going to be okay. But you have to understand the family, the placing family may call you because that child's doing something that's not recorded. And they do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Have you seen this behavior? Oh, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the family go, okay, what did you do to alleviate it or, or help it? And they go back and forth. And, and it's really helpful to the child to be able to do that. Right. So we never want in the, a closed adoption. We always want it to be once in a while we get a closed adoption because the people just refuse to, they change their email addresses and change their phone numbers. Disappear. Yeah, they disappear. Yeah. And that's happened. I believe it. I believe it because some of these uh, experiences that, that family has been through the amount of trauma themselves and PTSD. I think sometimes you feel like there's no way out and they just found one and they can't bear to, uh, right. They just can't bear to be part of that anymore. And what's really bad about that is that sometimes they've got children in the home and the children ask, how's she doing? How's, how's, Joey doing how's how what's going on with him he went to a new home is he okay kids are funny they want to they'll they'll say oh if he's doing really great and he's doing much better than he was doing with us and that that would satisfy a child right do you encourage other the placing families to also get counseling after this and I'm sure there's a, a amount of relief and guilt and a million emotions and then Always. dealing with their trauma and yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is, is that it's really important that they talk to somebody not related. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because relationships, we've had families who have placed a child in their family unit. They're, they were close to their families and the families have disowned them. It's really, really tough. And my family, I was lucky enough. My family was going, <laughs> you're stuck with her, <laughs> right. but we're, we're here for you. And right. they, they were, and they, they still are. And is there a stigma or do you think, you know, how are the families that are placing for the second adoption? Do you ever hear, or do you know about that? Is there a stigma or judgment? Like what you're saying, families abandon them. Is it considered you know, an, a negative thing or is there judgment around that? Oh, there's so many, much judgment around people making a, that hard decision. As I said, if you're working with a social worker and you're social worker and you're telling them how bad that, you know, that's what the children, child's doing. And you say, I want to place it. You know where I can find an agency that will place him with another home. Oh my God. That thing goes wild. That social worker will just go, oh, you can't do that. No, 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 no. And so what do they do? They keep hanging on. What we have found, is the reason we want to want people to know a little bit about the fact that we're not taking older children is because all that, you want a chance to give the child a way to heal. And the child has to heal. And if he doesn't, he or she doesn't heal, that child is never going to be a person who has learned how to love and live. 
And so we get a teenager and they've got issues of the wazoo and nobody's going to take that child because he's a teenager. I don't want to start with a teenager. Yeah. I don't know that feeling. Um, That's a sad. But it is sad. It is. Yeah. And I personally was not happy when we went to the 10 year old age mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I, I can see where some of those kids could benefit, but the placing the adopting families are so afraid of what they're going to get on an older child, 10 year olds. Yeah. They don't get as many as our five-year-olds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as I said, we had two, three-year-olds never get three-year-olds i've had a couple of four-year-olds over the last 11 years but the three and two one year and actually what it was less than a month apart so what if you get a do you ever face this where you get i mean children with reactive attachment disorder it's that spectrum of it can be mild moderate or severe and severe being homicidal suicidal do you work with those kids and place them no matter like let's say there's an eight-year-old with those extreme dangerous behaviors. Yes, we do. We actually do. We found actually one of the questions we ask is how does the child do in a different home? If you've seen that and you know, it's like Kara going over to my sister's and being calm, no problems, doing anything she asks. I mean, that was always a striking thing to me was because she put me put up a fence on me every step of the way. Do you think if she was with your sister for a longer period of time where there was then the this is your home and connection, do you think that would have changed? Was it just kind of a, a facade? I think it probably would have. I yeah. think it probably would have. Um, we're finding that. We get families that get a kid who's so off the wall and causing all sorts of problems fighting with every child in the home or fighting with the parents, everything. He goes to the new family and the new family says, oh, this is good. The placing family emails them, says, how's it going? And they say, really good. Placing family (laughs) calls Cindy and says, that can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) But these these kids do make it totally 180. So many of it sounds like part of it is because of that preparation that the the new family has. They've got the awareness of what's going on so that they can exactly get the training or the therapy or whatever they need. And so it's just from the get-go that awareness uh, they can handle it in a much better way than the parent that's unprepared by no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Yeah. And well, and there is some fault. I will go to the foster care system. Now, when they placed my two foster kids with me, they didn't give me any information except that their age, sex, and they need a home. Right. And I've families who have adopted foster kids will get uh, that same thing this day and age, not like yes. in 1980s, 1970s. Well, I know we got the same thing, and that was just uh, in 2013. As I said, they're doing it now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're placing children and going, well, you're, you've got the foster, you're a foster adopt. Okay. Well, you're still going to be a foster child until you're ready. Till we're, we feel this is going to be good. 
You don't know anything about the child. They won't give you any past information. They won't give you anything about what's going on with that child. And why do you think that is, Anne? Is it purposeful partly, or is it that they don't know? It's kind of like the HIPAA laws. Right. Privacy Act. Privacy Act. And, uh, but it's not doing the children any good. Mm-hmm. I, as I said, I get parents to tell me all about things like this. And one of them said to me the other day, and actually this was about a week ago, was that the foster system answers to adults. It does not answer to the child's needs. And I thought that was really probably the most succinct way of putting it. They're, they're for the families, for the adults. We make adjustments for the adults. This particular family was had when the child was placed with them, had the child had been in three foster homes, but the last foster home he'd kind of made an attachment. And so the state, when they placed the child with the adopted family that was now placing him, said, You've got to keep contact with this woman. You've got to meet with her at least once a week. Every time they met with her, he the kid was off the wall. They finally had to say, No, we can't do this anymore. And I said, who was that for? And that's when she said, it was for the adults. It was not for the child. And most of the time when the foster kid has been there, he's been in two or three foster homes mm-hmm. and, and not placed in a place an adopting home because the state is trying to reconnect them, trying to keep them together, trying to keep the family, the child and the adults, the parents together. The biological family is what you mean, trying to, yeah, work towards them going back. The reunion. Reunion, yeah. Reunification or whatever it's called. Yeah, reunification with the family, the biological family. The biological family. The biological family has been causing problems. Oh, they go back. Biological family keeps playing problem, doing the problems. Child keeps going back to a foster care home, back and forth, back Back and forth. Back and forth. Like a yo-yo. Right. And then they finally find the side, and I call the judges off on this one because mm-hmm. I, I have my disagreements with judges anyway. But uh, the judge says, well, I guess we can terminate parental rights. We'll give them 30 days to do it. So that's another 30 days, another, another time, another this, another that. The child is by that time, maybe four, maybe 10 just depends on the kid and the situation. But all that time, he's living in a home that may be making, probably making money, who's taking in kids for the money, not loving, very few foster homes that are uh, exceptional. There are a few. And as I said, you get a kid like, I get the 13, 14 year old or 15 year olds, and they've been doing their thing for a good many years. Mm-hmm. And the judge says, oh, well, they're getting that. They're aging out. So we're not going to get them find them a home. They could still go. They could still find a home. And that's my feeling. Because some foster families really do love their kids. But a lot of them are just caretakers. I see. So they do. The kid goes back and forth and back and forth. And then the judge finally says, no, that's not working. Let's place them for adoption. Okay, well, let's see. Who's going to take a 10-year-old for adoption? And by that time, the kid has got PTSD. He's also got RAD. He's got a whole bunch of stuff going on. 
I always love it when the main diagnosis is that somebody doesn't want to give a child rad, they give them ADHD and Medicaid. ADHD medication works if it's a real ADHD. Yeah. It doesn't work on rad kids. No, <laughs> right. Right. So it sounds like it's a complicated situation. It's a whole, whole lot of levels of the system. And then I imagine it's hard to be a social worker working in that. And then there might even be the biases, like what you're saying about that social workers are kind of led to be on that path of this has to be a forever home. There's, there's a lot, a lot in there that uh, on a big systemic level. It is. And, and you talk about uh, bias, Mm -hmm. you talk about you talk about bias it's with in families it's within friends it's within neighbors it's within a whole area and you know it oh you but you adopted him you wanted him well yeah i can agree with that they wanted him but the child is causing more difficulties and i would think people would understand that a, a child that's causing issues in the family is not helpful to the family. And so if I have, I'm, like I say, I'm going to be interviewing replacements. And I said, I'm not going to let Cindy or, or Peck or Kathy Kaiser, the director, I said, I have to be on those. In those meetings. Yeah because I am not going to leave that job until it's fixed with a, a person who's going to be as, as knowledgeable, understanding, and willing to work with the families. Because if you don't have, if you can't get past your own biases mm-hmm. and social workers are just like everybody else, they have their own ways of thinking and mm-hmm. I have met a few that think like I do, that it's important for the kids to be yeah. placed in the family. I'm sure they're out there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what would you tell before we go, what would you like to tell families that, you know, is there anything, any information that you'd like to share or uh, words of comfort, advice? If you're placing family, you need to know that it's okay to want your child to have some place where they're going to be better, going to feel better. You, you should not feel guilty about it because it's not your fault. This child came with these issues and very rarely do they keep them when they go to a new family that's prepared for them. And guilt-wise, I always say it's not your, it's not guilt, should not be considered guilt on your part from a place in family. You've done everything you know how to do. But don't keep doing it until it's past the time when a child's going to find, have a hard time finding a new home. Be aware that it's, it's, you want that child to have the best care and the best love and it's just it's important that you do as a family understand that 
no matter what you do, no matter when you do it. If you put him in a, uh, care, a, a rehab center or a, like a residential treatment centers on RTC. Thank you. And, and so it's important that the new families know what's going on. You don't want to leave the child just, I can't deal with him, so we give him to the, to the state, which is a no-no as far as I'm concerned, and should be for anybody. The state is not a good place to put children. And I, I know the state has taken some of our kids because the kid decided to, <laughs> we actually had that happen. We were working with a family and about ready to be done an intake on the child and everything. And then the child decided to do something off the wall. And the state came in and said, oh, this child is a danger to everybody. Oh, we'll put him in foster care. And that's what they did. They took custody of this child and caused the, the family all sorts of problems by saying they had not done well by the child. And it was, it was just a mess. No, please don't put it there. Please consider how long it's been going on. If, it's, if you adopted a child at four and you're reaching 10 and you had nothing but problems with that child, consider a different route. Consider helping them. Uh, don't put yourself through it all. Our families that have placed, and like I say, we have, we place about 60 kids a year. Last year was kind of slow because of the COVID, but we generally place about 60 kids a year. Okay. We've been doing this for 11 years. And those families, those hurting families, have survived and grown and know that their child is in a safer place than being in their home. And if people want to reach out to you, Anne, you can visit the website, which is www.wiaa.org. And Anne, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing what you do. I yeah, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story and sharing what you do, because I think there's a lot of families out there struggling when maybe they don't need to, and they can reach out to you. And I'm going to put these links on my Facebook page, Rad Talk with Tracy uh, on Facebook, so that you can also find them there. Anne's also got her book. I'll put that link on there too. And that's at Amazon. So easy to get. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much for what you do. And thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website, at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.